our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to Sunday School Dropouts, the podcast where an ex-Christian and a non-believing sort of Jew read all the way through the Bible for the first time, except we finished the Bible, so now we're talking about the stories that seem like they should be in there but simply aren't. My name is Nico Bakulich. And I'm Lauren O'Neill. And let's get biblical. Let's do it! But before we do, we have to tell you a couple of things. Yeah, like first of all, this is the season finale. Welcome to the season finale. And it's very long. Um, we're giving you a big, fat, juicy ep, and then we're going to take a break. And come up with a new season for you. So enjoy. You'll never hear from us again for up to a few months. Unless you follow us on Twitter, which we'll cover at the tail end of the show. Right now we're at the mouth. That's where the food goes in. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm the ex-Christian. I was raised Presbyterian. I am now an atheist. And I'm the non-believing sort of Jew. Also, this is not a Christian Bible study podcast. And it's not appropriate for children. What are we talking about on today's extra juicy season final e. e episode? We are talking about heaven and hell. That's right. We Not heaven or hell. This is not the heaven ep. This is not the hell ep. This is it's heaven both. and hell. Double barrel. It's a very complex topic because the primary focus of American Christianity writ large is heaven and hell mm -hmm. like you know hashtag not all christians but by and large the point of christianity as it is as it is currently practiced is to gain entrance into heaven when you die mm. uh but if you look at the bible the ideas of heaven and hell are the furthest thing from clear and everything that you think you know about them is wrong damn so let's take it all the way back shall we to the old testament I, uh, to prepare for this episode, I read this book called The History of Hell by Alice K. Turner, and she has this really great line, which is, the Jews, judged by the evidence of the Old Testament, were either the least morbid or the least imaginative of the Mediterranean peoples when it comes to the afterlife. Because hmm. if you look at any other ancient civilization, Egypt, Babylon, Greece, etc., etc., they all have extremely well-developed ideas of the afterlife. You're crossing rivers, you're weighing feathers, there's all these specific gods and goddesses who have specific roles. Uh, and in the Old Testament, it's like, uh, there's, you know, there's some there's some references to a pit. It's a pit. It's pretty much a pit. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9 even says, you know, like, when you're dead, you just stop existing. Right. And it's the same for everyone, no matter what they did during their lives or what they believed. Uh, clearly, that's not the only view of death that is present in the Old Testament. But it's in there. For sure. And it, it's really not foremost on anyone's mind. 
Right. So also, like, usually when the word hell appears in English translations of the Old Testament, the original Hebrew, it could be using any of, like, 10 different words. Mm. Um, And it's not really clear what they mean in terms of a specific afterlife, right? There's Sheol, Abaddon, Bor, Shachat. All of these can be translated as more ordinary words like pit or decay or things like that. You know, they they might refer to a realm of the dead. They might not. If they do, the ancient Israelites don't seem to have been very interested in thinking about what went on there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, like you die, you're underground. There's no uh, there's no God of the underworld. There's no ruler down there. Uh, no one can go on a quest down there and bring you back. No, it's just like a place your body gets parked. Just your your <laughs> altitude is now lower. <laughs> Than it was. You check your altimeter and it says in the pit. Yeah. Um, another popular word translated as hell is Gehinom or uh, Gehenna, as it's anglicized slash Greekified, and the related term Topheth. Um, this is perhaps closer to what we think of when we think of hell because it was specifically associated with wickedness mm. um, rather than just being like a undifferentiated pit. Um, but it was also an actual literal location. Uh, Topheth was the site in the valley of, well, it's the valley of Hinnom or Gehinnom, mm. Gehenna, um, south of Jerusalem, where uh, in Second Chronicles, King Ahaz sacrifices his sons of course, as to we all remember. false gods. Um, and in Second Kings, Josiah, the, the good king Josiah, destroys the child sacrifice altars to Molech there. So it is like a literal place. There, there's actually some other places in the Bible where it's just like, oh yeah, and they like pass through Gehenna mm-hmm. or they pass through like Topheth when they were like walking. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's a bad place where people have sacrificed children to false gods. Um, you also sometimes hear nowadays that Gehenna was basically like a dump or a landfill um, and that it's associated with flames because people were like burning trash or burning dead bodies. Which are um, all, that's all plausible, but it doesn't, I mean like. Yeah, it is all plausible, but it kind of seems to be an urban legend. Like sure. it, it doesn't seem to be attested from early on. Um, and I don't really see why you need it when the canonical Bible says multiple times that this is like the child sacrifice place. Like that's worse. <laughs> is that enough? Yeah. <laughs> is that not enough? Um, now there is a more detailed and consistent mythology around a day of the Lord at the end of time. Sure. That's kind of what the Old Testament has instead of, you know, like Anubis or, you know, Charon or whatever. Um, It doesn't have any cool gods. (laughs) We just got the the one regular one. Um, But there have been details that that have been built up, right? There's a Messiah who will unite Israel once again, all the nations that persecuted Israel will be destroyed, so on and so forth. Um, you see that in all the major and minor prophets. We got right. very sick of discussing it over and over again. Um, and this does get merged in the later written books of the Bible with the Day of Judgment. Right. Where all the dead will be resurrected and uh, judged either good or wicked at the end of time. Um, but you don't see that in the earlier written parts of the Bible. And it's thought actually to be influenced by contact with Persia because Persia had Zoroastrianism, which included a savior, a final battle, resurrection of the dead. 
and so on. Um, but even then, in the Old Testament, what happens to people once they've been judged? Not really clear. It's not really what the authors of the Bible were interested in. They don't go into detail. They're writing during the Babylonian exile or shortly after it. What they're concerned with is their temple got destroyed. Their holiest site got destroyed. Their capital city got ransacked. They got kidnapped and exiled. Uh, they're interested in imagining God is going to punish all the evil people who did this to us, going to bring us back to power. Uh, you know, what happens to an individual person after they die is not a topic of interest. You get some possible details in the book of First Enoch, as we saw. Yeah. Um, in that one, you got like Judgment Day. There's there's like some torture pits and stuff for the wicked. But A, that's not canonical in any church except the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And B, it's obviously very metaphorical. It involves like things that are supposed to be read as metaphors. And also it's like about fuck angels. So it's like not, <laughs> not like the necessarily the book that you want to like base your understanding of the universe on. True. So this time after the temple fell mm -hmm. was like a time of of like theological crisis for the Jews. Yeah, right? I imagine so. Yeah. And that's when a lot of the messianic stuff that had been like brewing probably since they were, you know, had been owned by several different empires. Pwned. As they say, mm -hmm. yes. As they as they did, and still to this day, mm -hmm. they say, um, started to like bleed into into Judaism because you know you're looking when times are tough, you're looking for a bright horizon. Um, the interesting threads of what led them to start thinking about heaven more in Greek philosophy: mm -hmm. your soul is eternal, even if your body dies, and your soul was given to you by God. At some point, or a, a god, or Just, by the divine, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when your body dies, the the mortal part of you goes on living. So there's that. Plus, there's resurrection. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At the end of time, your body gets back up again and gets yeah. to party forever. Mm -hmm. So the Jews like came up with a way to unify those things, or at least hold those things in conversation with their existing religion. Like we said, a lot of this isn't expounded upon at all in the Old Testament, but a bunch of it does make its way into the Talmud mm. and into other rabbinical writings. For example, the rabbis in rabbinical writings are very into the world to come. Right, olam haba. Which is both a concept, uh, like a sort of a philosophical concept, as well as in some cases like a theological concept of an actual heaven, sort mm -hmm. of. Yeah, or My, like the next age after sure. Judgment Day. Yeah, it could be a state of mind, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rabbi Joseph, the son of Rabbi Joseph ben Levi, dies and returns back to life. And his father asks mm -hmm. him, what did you see? He replied, I beheld a world the reverse of this one. Those who are on top here were below there and vice versa. Joshua ben Levi said to him, my son, you have seen a corrected world. Whoa. So the world to come is like... The meek inherit the earth. Something along those lines. You can see these ideas were percolating when Jesus was around. Totally. Yeah. Was this, do you know like what year this was? Was this like... That's Leviticus Rabbah, which is from uh, the first couple centuries AD, I think. Okay. It's one of the earlier uh, collections of Mishnah. The Jews were thinking about heaven. The Jews were starting to think about hell maybe a little bit. Yeah. Although... I mean... Yeah, so we can look at the New Testament mm -hmm. as well as like a document. And um, I think we should. <laughs> in fact, I'll invite us to look at the New Testament. Uh, we're in a completely different 
political situation from the Old Testament. It's been a few hundred years. Uh, we're now uh, in Judea. It's it's called Judea instead of Judah now, um, controlled by the Roman Empire and a uh, different set of priorities and beliefs and stuff. Uh, if I can walk you down memory lane ways. I would love to. Uh, you may recall from one of our previous episodes on either the Dead Sea Scrolls or the zesty Flavius Josephus, that Josephus, who was this big Jewish Roman historian, the Jewish Roman historian, said there were basically three sects of Judaism at this time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees are the ones that Jesus is always sparring with in the New Testament. Um, and you may recall that one of the main philosophical differences between them was that the Pharisees believed that the dead would be physically resurrected and judged at the end of days. And the Sadducees did not believe in any kind of resurrection or afterlife. Um, in fact, there's a scene in Acts 23 where Paul, uh, who was raised as a Pharisee, is being put on trial by the Jewish high court. And he pulls a fast one by saying that he's on trial for believing in the resurrection of the dead uh, and not specifying that he believes that Jesus specifically mm. was resurrected from the dead. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, yeah, uh, they're just persecuting me because I believe in the resurrection of the dead because I'm a Pharisee. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees start arguing and then the trial is postponed. Um in addition, I know. It's oddly plausible. Too. I know, right? <laughs> In addition to those two schools, you also have the Essenes. Um, that's the really strict ascetic school of Judaism that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Not around anymore because they weren't allowed to screw. Yeah. <laughs> womp womp. They have a third view of the afterlife, um, which Josephus describes like this. Teaching the same doctrine as the sons of Greece... They declare that for the good souls there waits a home beyond the ocean, a place troubled by neither rain nor snow nor heat, but refreshed by a zephyr that blows ever gentle from the ocean. Bad souls they consign to a darksome, stormy abyss full of punishments that know no end. He goes on to say, They tell these tales firstly because they believe souls to be immortal, just like you were saying, and secondly, in the hope of encouraging virtue and discouraging vice since the good become better in their lifetime through the hope of a reward after death, and the propensities of the bad are restrained by the fear that, even if they are not caught in this life, after their dissolution they will undergo eternal punishment. So basically, he describes the basic modern Christian conception of heaven and hell, but to him, it's this weird Greek idea mm -hmm. that most Jews know nothing about. Definitely not Jesus, who's closest to the Pharisees. Right. It's like this weird Essene thing. Um, and, you know, he did do an internship with the Essenes. That's right. So he's probably pretty knowledgeable on the subject. Now, obviously, Jesus was not a Pharisee himself because he was always fighting with them. He had his own thing going on. His own flavor. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what did Jesus himself say about heaven and hell? The answer to that is surprisingly ambiguous. Like, I was raised to believe that it's very clearly laid out. And mm -hmm. even like when we were reading through it, I projected that clarity onto it hmm. in a way that doesn't actually really hold up when you look at it closely. So the word heaven is used a lot in the Gospels, uh, but it signifies the place up in the sky where God and the angels live. Right. Not necessarily a place where individual souls go after they die. In fact, like the... New Testament is written in Koine Greek, the like dialect of Greek that was spoken at the time. And the word for heaven is Uranos, which is, you know, Uranus 
it's named after the Greek god of the sky. Okay. Um, what else did he do? <laughs> he made a cool planet hmm. very far out. Sweet. Far out indeed. Uh, the Gospels also talk a lot about like the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, but it's it's discussed in terms of the final judgment, right? It's It doesn't really move us forward from the Old Testament, like end of days deal where a Messiah reunites Israel, Israel's enemies are punished, the dead are resurrected, blah, blah, blah. Like that's the kingdom of God. It's not necessarily heaven. Right. Uh, kingdom of God is all over this thing. And it's never quite clear if, again, it is like the place to come. Uh, a metaphor? Could it exist on Earth? Or does it? Is it a really a separate location? Are you going with Jesus to a second location? <laughs> he, um, never follow a hippie to a second location. John says that Jesus said. Mm -hmm. So John calls me, mm -hmm. and he tells me that Jesus said, <laughs> "In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. Uh, I go to prepare a place for you." Dot dot dot. Yes. Um, that sounds kind of like our modern conception of heaven. Yeah, it's kind of. Uh, <laughs> but also the Gospel of John never mentions hell once. Hmm. And also Jesus does like die for everybody. So in that way, he's also preparing a place. Mm -hmm. um, it could also just be a metaphor, as yeah, many things are. Exactly. Um, because like... I mean, Jesus was like a metaphor machine, right? His main oh, thing yeah. was he spoke in parables. One of the all-time greats. He's always talking about coins and sheep and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, okay, so then when you talk about like the kingdom of God, to what extent are is it a metaphor? And the answer is, don't really know. Right. Could be very literal, could be totally metaphorical, not really sure. Um, you know, eternal life and eternal damnation are mentioned many times. Are they metaphorical or literal? Don't really know. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's a lot of talk about judgment at the end of days, but no heaven or hell per se. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, there's that very interesting passage where some rabbis try to trick Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and like, let me tell you first, here's how I remember it. And here's how I summarize it when I'm talking to people about it. I say basically like, so some rabbis ask Jesus, you know, if a woman's husband dies and she marries his brother, which was like Jewish law at the time, and then that brother dies and she marries his other brother, and then that brother dies and she marries another brother, uh, who is she married to in heaven? And Jesus says, like, don't be silly. We're all angels in heaven. When you look at the actual passage, though, mm -hmm. like, that's what I was projecting onto it because of what I had been taught right. about it in church. It actually says, like, the exact quote is, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. So they're specifically, like, the Bible is actually talking about the Sadducees, who don't believe in resurrection, versus Jesus, who does. They're not talking about heaven. They're talking about resurrection at the end of days. I see. Um, and, like, they're trying to trick him into, like, admitting that his Pharisaic belief is wrong. And then his answer is nothing about heaven. It's actually... When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Got it. So he's like explicitly differentiating between this afterlife and heaven. He's right. saying we'll be like angels, but it'll be when the dead rise. It won't be in heaven. And you have to also bake in the fact that their idea of angels in heaven back then was probably those weird scroll monsters oh, yeah. with a thousand eyes. thousand eyes. Who spend six eternity. Six wings, covering their dicks. You know, singing God's praises and floating around him. Absolutely. So that's not like, you know, golfing forever 
steak dinners every night. <laughs> right. Playing a harp. Mm-hmm. Um, the one place in the Gospels that has a portrayal of heaven and hell that's similar to ours is the Gospel of Luke. Um, it's Luke 16. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where a rich man lives in luxury and does not help a poor beggar named Lazarus, not the Lazarus who got resurrected from the dead, different Lazarus. And when they both die, the rich man looks up from Hades, Mm -hmm. where he's being tormented with flames, and he sees into heaven where Lazarus is chilling with Abraham. He's uh, like being clutched to the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man man asks Abraham to make Lazarus bring him some water because he's thirsty due to being tortured by the flames. And Abraham is like, you know, sorry, them's the breaks. Uh, You were rich on earth and you had your reward on earth. And now in the afterlife, you suffer. And for Lazarus, it's the opposite. He suffered on earth and now this is his reward. So that is like there's a bad guy. He goes to hell. The hell happens immediately, not at the end of days. Uh, There's even like flame. There's fires. Yep. There's campfires roasting. Mm -hmm. Um, Pretty good precursor for our modern heaven and hell. Except that Abraham's the one running the show in heaven, which is not how we think of it now. True. Um, And also Abraham tells the rich man that he should have followed Moses and the prophets, not Jesus. Right. Uh, So So this is like a rabbinical folktale. Yeah. That's like adopting some Greek stuff to try and like just wrap it up in a nice little package. Or even if Jesus means it 100% literally, which... Mm -hmm doesn't seem likely because it's like the only instance right but even if he did mean it 100 percent literally like that's not i mean <laughs> we don't think that it's abraham running the show up there and we don't think you get into heaven by following moses and the prophets christians don't right um and like jews don't either because they don't believe in heaven this way so right like what the hell <laughs> yeah literally what the hell i don't know on top of that what's the deal with Jesus saying that the rich man is in Hades. That's what I'm saying. That like right? This is a, a folk story or right. something. This is just like something from popular culture. Like whether you believe in Christianity or not, like we all agree that Jesus did not think of Hades as being the underworld, right? Right. Like So even though the Bible was written in Greek, Jesus probably didn't speak Greek, right? Well, he might have. It's unclear. Um I read this book called That All Shall Be Saved by David Bentley Hart. Um and he points out like Yeah, okay, Greek was like the lingua franca Mm. of the empire at the time. Uh, You know, most people like are bilingual except for Americans and Brits in the 20th and 21st century. There's it's quite possible that he spoke Greek, but his first language would have been Aramaic. Mm -hmm. And when he was preaching to his disciples who were all Jewish, he would have been speaking Aramaic. Mm. So like, did he really say Hades? Probably not. Right. And like, to what extent? Are any of his words, you know, like if he says Hades or if he says Gehenna or whatever, like who knows? Because he was speaking in Aramaic and then it's translated into Greek and then we're reading it 2000 years later, translated into English. So it's like, are we really going to read like base our entire understanding of the cosmos on something that's like through multiple veils of translation, you know? I mean, some of us are. Fair enough. Because they get you close enough. (laughs) If you look at it from an anthropological angle... It's actually almost like boring. It's like, oh, like, oh, yes, you can see how the ideas about the afterlife in this community uh, changed according to their, you know, political preoccupations, their uh, station in life. Um, 
who, you know, who really cares whether this one community leader used the word Hades right. versus Gehenna right. or whatever. Um, who cares if he was being more literal or more metaphorical? It's just like, oh, yeah, you can see the ideas about the afterlife changing. But then you think of like all the bloodshed and carnage that like Christianity has wrought over the past 2000 years, just like based on the idea that you have to do this one type of thing to go to heaven and you have to do this one type of thing to go to hell. Well, from that same anthropological perspective, uh, you might say that a lot of that stuff that they said was about very particular interpretations of words and and meanings of long dead people um, was not actually about that at all. Right. Exactly. Um, also, like Alice Turner, the history of hell, this book points out like at the time Jesus was preaching from an anthropological angle, uh, their perspective was totally different when they were hearing it. In fact, they thought like he was preaching about the end is nigh. Yeah. Right. So who cares about that was the hot. That was the hot take of the day. Yeah. That was the tune that anybody, everybody wanted to hear. And if you look at the New Testament, it's always like, oh, like, it's going to happen within the next generation. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's it's imminent. So they weren't thinking about the, like, immediate heaven and hell of, like, when an individual dies, what happens to their soul? Like, where does it go in the cosmos? It was like, the end is nigh. Judgment. We're going to divide the wicked and the evil. Or yeah. Divide the it's wicked and the righteous. It's time to sort this stuff out. Yeah. Like, things, are, things are going really poorly. Who cares about immediate heaven and hell? Like. The end of days is right there. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> and everyone's stuck on Earth. And uh, now the next, you know, the next several generations of early Christians have to make sense of the fact that their religion is completely focused on, like, the end of time. But time That's is, true. It's is a, stubbornly refusing to end. It's a great trick to have to. Uh, it's like steering a cruise ship, you know away from shore mm -hmm. <laughs> they're like well we're going full speed mm -hmm. at the shore and that's the only way that this thing works we got to turn it so now it's like you got to you have to pivot to heaven and hell right that's right <laughs> um and people choose to like do this in different ways right so the gnostics who we've covered in many episodes uh decided that basically earth already was hell mm -hmm. um it was this fake realm created by this lesser god called the demiurge and jesus came down to give us the secret gnosis or knowledge that would let us join god in like the real heaven gnosis gnosis uh then everyone else is like uh okay well uh if god is going to keep us down here what are we going to do about all these unbaptized babies like they're piling up <laughs> Uh, and if they die unbaptized, what's going to happen to them if there's no Judgment Day coming? So let's just say they're in limbo. Right. And it's this in-between place where they're hanging out. They're not getting punished. Uh, they can't go to heaven yet. They're just waiting there. But also, like, what about Abraham and the Jewish patriarchs like Jacob? Like, who? They seem cool. Right. Jesus liked them. They're not going to hell. So what we assume is Jesus must have taken a trip immediately upon leaving Earth. Precisely. And he m may have gone a-harrowing. He may have gone a-harrowing to these many limbos, such as unbaptized baby limbo and or <laughs> uh, Jewish patriarch limbo. JPL. And or uh, there's also a pagan limbo eventually mm -hmm. developed because, uh, you know, like a lot of these early Christians are Gentiles. Um, also, the Jews are, you know, have had a lot of exposure to Greco-Roman culture by this point you know, centuries worth. 
And so they're like, I don't know. Plato seemed cool. Right. Do we really think he's going to hell? I don't know. I think he's probably in limbo. He gets invited to the cookout. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there, yeah, there becomes this this very strange doctrine, the harrowing of hell, where Jesus, after he dies on the cross, but before he comes back to life, goes down and saves all his buddies from limbo who happened to be born at the wrong time, but were cool dudes anyway. They just had to wait in a basement for, you know, a few thousand years, whatever. Right. Um, well, pa- time passes pretty quickly in, in the pit. <laughs> I think it's supposed to pass very slowly, actually. In the pit? Yeah. Oh. Oh, you're talking about the pit. Yeah. Oh, things are crazy in the pit. Yeah. You you got to be prepared. Let's. Jesus goes there and he says, let's open up this pit. <laughs> let's tear up this pit. Um, I had never heard of the harrowing of hell. We've covered it in other episodes, but... Um, I had never heard of it growing up as a Presbyterian. I had certainly um, never heard of it before we did this show. Yeah, yeah. When you explained it to me the first time, including all the time travel and whatnot, I was like, <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, I don't really get it either. It's, I guess it's bigger in Catholicism and uh, in it seems researching. It like, seems like such an obvious theological, like, gap plugging. Right. You know? Yeah. It's like retcon. Um, in researching for this episode, I discovered that it had kind of like gone in and out of fashion for several centuries Mm -hmm. um, in the Catholic Church. Uh, But it is in, like, the Apostles' Creed. The guy from Rocky? Mm Mm-hmm. So after Jesus, but before leaving the canonical Bible, there is an important heaven and hell touchstone, which is, of course, the book of Rev. Mm. Galatians. Oh, my. A Um, surprise. It's one of the only ones that, that talks about heaven in any detail. Uh, one of well, the, one of the only canonical books. The, I mean, the Old Testament talks about heaven in detail in terms of the place where God lives, right? And the angels right, right, live, right. and they're freaky beasts, right? And it's implied that people don't really go there, right? Yeah, I mean, like the people, the prophets who are narrating these are like, right? They go up there and they're like, oh shit, <laughs> this, is, this is way too much. I'm and, about to die. And every yeah, everything at every turn, their head is about to get blown off yeah, yeah. by. A, an incredible truth or the sound of God's voice or whatever. They have to burn their lips with embers and so on and so forth. <laughs> but Revelation also talks a little bit about it in in some of those same terms. And yes. you see a lot of the same like numerological coincidences and descriptions of fantastical materials. Creatures with billions of eyes. Yeah. It talks about the city, you know, at, that's at the top of heaven, which is where God's throne is. Um, the foundation was Jasper, the second sapphire, the third Chalcedony, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Emerald, Sardonyx, Sardius. <laughs> Sardonyx. Yeah, Sardonyx. Mm. Sounds like a video game company from the late 90s. A very sarcastic one, if you don't mind my saying Absolutely. so. Absolutely. They would make one with like a a furry, foul-mouthed mascot of some kind. Like Sonic. <laughs> <laughs> More like Bubsy. Oh. Real heads, no. Um, a lot of this symbology of the like pure throne the glass and the gold and blah 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 will continue on but the interesting thing is the transition in thought about heaven from these fantastical materials this pure opulence that's like otherworldly being specifically because it's where god lives Mm -hmm. to like that's what you'll inherit Mm -hmm. you know you'll inherit a city of gold you know with glass streets and blah 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 and that's where you'll live as if you know, you want material things when you're dead? I don't mm-hmm. know. Is that your great reward is, right. is material stuff in life? I mean, these suckers don't know that you get to live in this crazy city, but you do 
grow a million eyes right. and have to spend <laughs> and the rest of eternity like hovering around God's tiniest toe. And so you that, are going to have to cover your dick with one of your pairs of wings. Yes. All the um, time. You're one of your 10 wings? Six, I think. <laughs> um, but like, so Revelation is also weird in that people insist and have insisted for a long time on trying to interpret it literally. Well, kind of literally, right? Like it's, it can't be taken as anything other than a metaphor, right? It's just like people choose to say like, oh, the beast is Obama sure. or whatever, you know, like Pelosi. Right. <laughs> um, but it's very obviously allegorical and like a very weird book to try and base your idea of heaven on. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that that has stopped thousands of people from doing so, but it is. I feel like it's like the weakest foundation for beliefs about the afterlife. I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. But I, it has great images, and I think they have endured much longer than the practical value of the book would indicate. Yeah, that's true. They are very vivid, strange images that you really can't help but like think about more. Mm. After all that, mm-hmm. the Jews spent the next thousand years or so developing more and more complicated versions of heaven. Really? Yeah. They sort of adapted a a concept that was already in play among some other religions of the time, Mm -hmm. the seven heavens. Oh, right. And built on it and built on it and built on it. And then it ends up in a lot of Kabbalah and secret mystic knowledge Yes. I mean, even Paul, Paul has a quote somewhere in one of those epistles about like, Oh, uh, someone, you know, that I know had a vision where he was taken up to the sixth heaven. Right. So it's already in play at that point. Yeah. And I think those are like some combination of Zoroastrian and Manichaean Mm -hmm. and a little bit of like Mm Neoplatonism, like the different rings of shit. You know what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. I mean, similarly, like with hell over the next few centuries, early Christians, again, there's Hellenized Jews as well as Gentiles involved and they developed this idea of hell where Greco-Roman mythology is combined with Jewish mythology. Yeah, taking the best of both. I mean, why not, right? Right. And so then they come up with apocalypse literature, which we've covered a bit, you know, apocalypse of Peter, apocalypse of Paul. um, And these start to form the very foundation of our modern idea of hell Keep in mind, this is hundreds of years before Dante, like a thousand years before Dante. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you're mixing all these all these mythologies, why not have a king of hell? Right. Like the Greeks have Hades. Sure. We need one of those. Right. Right. Uh, so we start putting a ruler over hell. Sometimes it's Beelzebub or Beliar or sometimes even Greek Hades is present with other like Judaic demons. Yeah. Um, He's like, I'm Christian now, but I'm the bad guy. But it's it's complicated. I don't truly understand it, but I'm here and I'm going to punish you. Um, the whole idea of like Satan uh-huh. as the Lord of the underworld does not happen for many, many centuries. And it's not in the Bible at all. Right. Like Satan is in the Bible, but he's not the king of hell. No. Um, Alice Turner, He's one of God's closest confidants and advisors at first and then he's like the tempter of jesus but he's never in the fire and brimstone whatever right mixing it up yeah um alice turner points out that during those early centuries christians were being persecuted 
quite ruthlessly by Romans mm-hmm. and like very literally being tortured. I mean, when you think about how Jesus died, it was very literal torture. Yeah. Um, and that was happening to tons of people at the time. So it makes sense that they had a lot of anxieties about torture that they would need to work out and think about through their mythology. But why do we still need to have it? Unclear. Unclear for now, but maybe we will discover the answer in the second half of our show. We probably won't, but... We definitely won't. You can't rule it out. You can. Goodbye. Welcome back to Sunday School Dropouts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Nico. And we're talking about heaven and hell. Now, as Christianity begins to spread through Europe, through the Middle Ages, it accumulates more and more baggage. Mm-hmm. As we all do. From all the cultures that it's, you know, encompassing, engulfing. Uh, for example, the word hell itself is the underworld in Norse mythology. Mm. Um, and it's also the name of the goddess that rules over it, like Hades. Uh, also similar to Hades, it's not a place of punishment. It's just kind of a blank place where people mill about. Um, and the word heaven, of course, from Old English, meaning the sky. Right. Yeah. Nothing more complicated than that. Right. It's like probably. I mean, metaphorically, it's all, the sky is always complicated. It's big like and it's scary. Uranus mm-hmm. in Greek, and also like if you look at, I mean, in Spanish, el cielo is the sky and heaven. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as these ideas developed, medieval Europe became obsessed with hell. Mm-hmm. It was their absolute favorite topic for books, art, theater. Everyone was just constantly thinking about the most complicated ways to skin people and crush people. Totally. And, like put termites in their veins or whatever. Yeah. Nowadays, you have your Colton Burpos, your Colton's Burpo. Um, who have like near-death experiences and talk about going to heaven. Mm -hmm. Back then, your near-death experience would give you a tour of hell. And then some scribe would write it up. uh, and Some money-grubbing scribe. (laughs) You know the types I'm talking about. It would be called vision literature. Mm -hmm. And it would be a bestseller among the 13 people who could read. Um, You may have heard of mystery plays. Turns out they're not mysterious. Mystery is a bastardization of ministry. Mm. They're ministry plays, and they're performed basically like a cosmic scared straight program. I've never heard of mystery plays. Oh, you've never heard of mystery no. plays? Okay, so basically, so you're right that I may have heard of, them, but in, <laughs> in this that case, I have not. I haven't. Yeah. Um, basically, like during medieval times, you'd have these kind of like traveling troops of actors, okay, and they would go around town to town, and they would put on plays, and the plays were like about going to heaven or hell sweet so um 
you know, it'd be like a morality play. Yeah. It it eventually became morality plays. Okay. Um Jesus harrowing hell was a popular depiction or someone getting a tour of hell like these apocalypse or vision literature stories and it would be very 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 elaborate in the depiction of hell. Mm. The absolute pride and joy of these productions was hell. They would have this thing called the hell mouth, right, which was the entrance From to hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. The entrance to hell and it would be extremely like well produced, right? It'd be huge. It'd be like 10 feet long, 10 feet tall. Um, it's 100 square feet, baby. It would be. And it would have like pulleys and cranes so that people could be like flying up and down from it. There would be like special effects with firecrackers and like the the actress who played demons had to have like special like lead lined masks to not get burnt by the firecrackers. Um, and then like heaven would just be like, oh, there's like a ladder. <laughs> it's like up there. It's taller than normal. Yeah. <laughs> um and so like all the creativity and the imagination went toward hell. Mm. Um you know, it's this is kind of skipping forward in time a few centuries, but when you look at, you know, like later medieval artists like uh Bruegel and Bosch or maybe they're the Renaissance, I don't know. Still they're they, you know, they have these complete completely surreal hellscapes that are sure. like so full of detail, right? Like there is like a, you can tell Bosch loved that shit. Oh, absolutely, right? It's like a dude bending over and playing the French horn with his asshole or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, like furry fish with legs are like walking around. Um, and it was also popular to paint like the last battle on Judgment Day, right? Which is where you can have you can have these beautiful angels, but they're fighting these freaky demons, and you can do all sorts of weird shit with the demons. And then heaven is like, eh, it's nice. You know, like, <laughs> it's like it's got all your favorites there. Mary is there. Right. <laughs> all the apostles. Um, but you of... guarantee nobody's playing a French horn with they ask. No, they're just playing a stupid harp. Like, who cares? Um, part of this is the influence of people like Peter Lombard and Thomas Aquinas, who advanced a view that would later be called the abominable fancy. And this is of the course. this is the idea that people in heaven, part of their reward is getting to look down at hell and see everyone else suffering. So there's kind of like a popular morbid delight in imagining how, you know, your neighbor or like your cousin or whoever is going to get like sliced up <laughs> um, into a thousand pieces. I have a piece of a of a sermon of specifically about that. This is from just a little bit later. It's by Jonathan Edwards. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. The so Puritan leader. It's it's a bit later, but like same kind of deal. When the saints in glory, therefore, shall see the doleful state of the damned, how will this heighten their sense of the blessedness of their own state, so exceedingly different from it? When they see they shall see how miserable others of their fellow creatures are, who were naturally in the same circumstances with themselves, when they shall see the smoke of their torment and the raging of the flames of their burning, and hear their dolorous shrieks and cries. Mm. How they will rejoice. How they will rejoice at the dolorous shrieks and cries. That's a fucked up version of, I, of heaven. Totally In my agree. opinion. And hell. <laughs> um, and they've, then, they've made it all too human. Right. You know, like that's, yeah. that's so petty. It is. It's very petty. And then like the other depictions of heaven are like, okay, either it's full of freaky million eyed beasts mm -hmm. or it's like, you know, like, uh, you know, Jesus says in my father's house, there's many rooms. It's like a, a big mansion. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, 
a mansion doesn't seem that great. Like, it seems nice, but right. there's plenty of people on Earth who have mansions. Very few people on Earth are having, you know, slugs fill their lungs or whatever. You know, like, uh-huh. there's not, like, supernatural tortures. I would say too many. <laughs> However many are having slugs fill their lungs is too many. So there's kind of, like, an imbalance in the imagination, right? Like, mm. we can't think of... It, it just seems so much easier to think of horrible tortures than to think of things like it than to think of eternal bliss which is really funny to me because there's a theological like problem in my mind with the idea of eternal damnation or eternal salvation oh yeah because if it's god's whole system you can make a sin against god so bad that you'll be damned forever Mm -hmm. we're gonna get into this later okay okay i hope you have the answer i do oh don't worry that's a relief yeah um, another <laughs> turn my brain off and wait for that then. So then another medieval uh, innovation sort of is the concept of purgatory. Mm. I was surprised to learn that the Catholic Church didn't come up with purgatory until the 1100s. I was raised to believe that basically like there's heaven and hell and then Catholics like made up this dumb idea of like limbo and purgatory. Um, and I didn't realize that limbo came like a thousand years before purgatory. Um, limbo is, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, limbo is like, you know, the holding cell, the time travel holding cell that we discussed earlier. Right. Um, and then purgatory is where you go if you die and you're, you know, you're a Christian, you're, you know, more or less a good person, but you, but you have some sins upon your soul. So then you just go to purgatory and you're going to purge your sins, hence purgatory. Um, and then after a while there, you get to go to heaven. In some of the rabbinical literature, they talk about purgatory very early yeah so that's the thing is that then i was like okay i was like okay it was made up in 1100 makes sense that you know catholics might be like or you know catholics were the only thing that existed at that point and you know they were like okay uh this hell thing seems kind of harsh for a loving god Uh, purgatory that makes sense let's do that but there's actually a really long history that goes back like before jesus yeah absolutely the greeks were thinking about it as well but the Jewish interpretation of it was really interesting, which is that when you die, regardless of how good or bad you are, if you're one of the Jews that like believes your eternal soul does something after you die, everybody goes to this place for 12 months. And do you know what the place is? It's, uh, I mean, what do you think? It's Gehenna. Yeah, it's the pit. It's the child sacrifice valley. Oh, well, there you go. And it's, a, it's the place of fire. It's the bad place. Everybody goes there for 12 months while people do their mourning. And at the end of the 12 months of mourning, if everything is good, you can go be reunited with God or go free or whatever you're supposed to be doing. Twelve months. Twelve months. Not that bad. It's not that bad. Uh, but some people, according to the literature, some souls are just not good enough. They either need to stay longer in order to be redeemed or they got to stay there forever if they're never going to make the cut. That sucks. Yeah. So that but, actually... it's, but it's a place of self-improvement. You know, it's like... Yes. It's a place where you're you're working on your shit, you know? <laughs> Through, you know, fire. Yeah, well, you know, God's ways are mysterious, mm-hmm, baby, mm-hmm. but it's the results that count. There's also, uh, you know, in Second Maccabees, mm-hmm. which is a pre-Christian Jewish book that you can, we did a episode on First and Second Maccabees that you can listen to. Um, there's a scene where Judah Maccabee, the Jewish folk hero, uh, quote, made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. This very closely accords with the eventual Catholic idea of purgatory where uh, people people on earth can pray for you and that'll get you out of purgatory That'll get faster. you points. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's like paying into the commissary for somebody in jail. Exactly. Um, there's also plenty of Bible verses that could just as easily be about a more like purgatory type place than about hell. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 3 says that on Judgment Day, everyone's work will be tested with fire and, quote, if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. Hmm. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So then, you know, so there's a bunch of ideas floating around mm -hmm. about kind of a, a place where you get to just like, you know, work out all your sins. You're yes. just going to like, you know, you're going to shake it out. And which, then, is, which is a way to soften the unfortunate <laughs> idea of, idea of eternal, eternal damnation. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then it, it really solidifies in, you know, in the 1100s, 1200s, because basically there's all these weird heresies popping up at the time. The Love them. The Bogomils yeah. and the Albigensians. And the church is kind of like, okay, we got we to gotta get this stuff in check. What we're going to do, we're going to give you, we're going to crack down. And uh, we're going to kill you if you <laughs> like subscribe to one of these heresies. But on the plus side... You get to go to purgatory instead of hell. Eh? Mm -hmm. Eh? Mm -hmm. Eh? Mm -hmm. Of course, then a problem happened. And the problem was that the church started selling indulgences to uh, reduce your time in purgatory. And then, bloop, Protestant Reformation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they invented the market, and then the market went bust. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, I mean, you can see why Martin Luther despite all my very big problems with him, was like, okay, rich people are just paying to not go to purgatory. That does, That's not okay. <laughs> like, yeah. That doesn't seem that real. That really doesn't make yeah. any sense. Um, <laughs> and so he, you know, split off. And then also um, his, other, his other big innovation in terms of heaven and hell was uh, the doctrine of sola fide or faith only. Mm -hmm. So Catholics believe you get into heaven with a mix of good works and faith and martin luther was like no it's faith only and then calvin expanded on that and says like okay well since god knows everything that means he already knows who will have that faith and so they're predestined to go to heaven uh so jesus actually didn't die for everyone he just died for the elect and the reprobate are predestined to eternal damnation that's horrible stuff especially yeah. because didn't calvin also think that like if you were predestined Everybody could tell. I don't think Calvin said that. I could be wrong. I'm not mm. super well educated. I think that just that just kind of uh, naturally naturally bubbled up. Right. So <laughs> yeah. you, so everybody was like, so we got to be rich and we got to be like look clean. Right. Because that's how you could you know if you're predestined to heaven, mm -hmm. wouldn't you think that if I look like somebody person, yeah. who's going to heaven, right. I probably am. When actually in Luke 16, the rich man goes to hell and the poor man gets to go into Abraham's bosom and not get anybody a cup of water. That's right. So uh, now we got, you know, fate and free will and predestination and people are still arguing about it today very annoyingly and completely fruitlessly. <laughs> Before people, It's funny that people, I mean, like Augustine was trying to work this shit out. Oh, yeah. Origin, like the, the early church fathers had yeah. like had established all these schools of thought yeah. about this. And then it's just like, eh, we still got to argue about it. It really doesn't make any sense. No. Like when you throw in like original sin. And then you're like, okay, well, all of those unbaptized kids or embryos or whatever, like what percentage of heaven is people that we would recognize right. as people, right. like Christians? Or... And so then it's like, 
okay, then you go back and look at the Bible, and as we talked about in the first half of the show, it's like completely unclear. Yeah. It's I'm not saying that like, oh yeah, there's no heaven and hell or whatever. It's just there's a jillion different views and they could be interpreted in a jillion different ways. And like Jesus made some things very clear, right? Mm-hmm. Like he laid out the Lord's prayer. He was like, when you pray, say, say this. this. So if he was going to lay out, like if, if your eternal soul depended on something like that, don't you think you would have like laid it out? You know, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, to move backward a little bit in time from the Protestant Reformation, I just feel like we got to give a shout out to Dante's Inferno. Sure. Because it's... And Paradiso. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, so Dante wrote this this book poem or poem book, uh, <laughs> such as The Divine Comedy. And it's got three parts. You're such a way with words. Thank you. I was an English major. <laughs> I have a master's degree in writing. Thank you. Um, it's got three parts. Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso. Uh, pretty much people nowadays just read inferno um and i think dante gets a lot of credit for helping to create the popular image of hell um but after doing all this research i've kind of come to the conclusion that he gets too much credit Mm. i mean he was synthesizing just a lot of stuff that was already out there yeah and it's not to detract from like i mean the artistic and literary merit is very high is yeah it's amazing yeah but i don't think he should get credit for for coming up with the idea of hell because like you can see it a thousand years earlier in the apocalypse of Paul or Peter, you know? Right. Um, and actually his innovations were things that didn't really stick in the popular imagination, at least in the English speaking world. Mm. I can't really, I, maybe in Italy it's somewhat different or in other places, but um, you know, like I think most people who believe in hell don't think that like Virgil has anything to do with it sure. these days, you know? He, yeah. Like an ancient Roman pagan. Um, they don't believe you have to cross the river Styx, which is what, you know, which is what's in there. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, there's kind of, it, it was kind of a previously established idea that there could be levels of right. heaven and hell. Circles, yeah. Which is all platonic junk. Right. Um, which is what he imported from, yeah. you know, from Roman mythology because he was Italian. Um, I mean, we still say stuff like, oh, the seventh circle of hell, but I don't think anybody really believes that. But one thing that is very modern that Dante did was put in the final circle, the betrayers, you know. Oh, yes. Those who turn on their friends. Oh, yes. And also he put a bunch of his like enemies in various circles, (laughs) you know, like the fucking Duke of Padua or whatever. Um, and actually also his, um, his Satan is, uh, is an interesting innovation because Mm. His Satan is weeping um, and like utterly defeated. Right. Not triumphant in hell, uh, you know, exult, exulting among the uh, lost souls. He's like crying. But actually, so Alice Turner thinks that his lasting impact was more that he killed off vision literature. Like he took this idea of a tour of hell and instead of it being like, your Colton's Burpo, like, sure, this really happened. You know, I saw this. It's supposed to be fictional. It's supposed to be allegorical. So it actually made it easier to think of hell as more fictional, mm. um, not a literal place where you, you know, have centipedes poured in your ears or whatever. Um, and as you get into the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, hell does become more fictional. People start arguing with their preconceived notions of hell okay. from a more 
interrogating them. Yeah. from And then from more like scientific or rationalist perspective, um, you know, people like Isaac Newton are out there like figuring out the planets in outer space. And then it's like, OK, so is hell a so literal hell? place? Yeah. Right. Like is heaven. Where do you go? Do you go to the moon? Like, <laughs> um, And you start getting people like. Answer. Yes. <laughs> heaven is the moon. The philosoph Pierre Bale started to argue stuff like, you know, if atheists are just good people because they value goodness Mm -hmm. rather than fearing hell, Mm -hmm. doesn't that make them better people than Christians? You know, like... Because they're not coerced into it? Right. You know, so Is that more charitable? Right. People are just like advancing arguments like that, like, you know, rhetorical types of arguments. Um, Of course, most people still believed in heaven and hell and especially your more you know like you're just your average dude who didn't have an education and the elites and philosophes were very happy to let that continue because they had very condescending views about how the commoners should believe in heaven and hell because it'll make them behave better sure and presumably they had some hand in determining what was good right. and bad for yeah. the commoners. So yeah. Voltaire has this quote that like, there's no actual hell, but, uh, quote, it is well for your maid, your tailor, and especially your lawyer to believe it. Wow. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Lawyer jokes. Yeah. They're very old, apparently. And then, you know, the idea of hell becomes less common in literature and art. Eventually, you instead start to get stuff like Frankenstein, Dracula, Edgar Allan Poe. Like now stuff, we're talking. Yeah, stuff where the horror is on Earth. Mm-hmm. The unnatural horror is on Earth. Um, and it doesn't need to be thought of as being in another realm. Um, and then... Then you get stuff like World War One and World War Two, where we create hell. Yeah, where, yeah, the hell isn't even fictional anymore. Yeah. It's just real. And then in this book, The History of Hell, uh, Alice Turner's like, you know, and nowadays believing in hell is like kind of embarrassing and it's only for fundamentalists and we're kind of over that. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure that you as a as a New York liberal who was the fiction editor of Playboy for many decades, like, I'm sure that's what you think. (laughs) Um, However, that's not really what's happening in the rest of the U.S. or the world. Um, The latest numbers. um, Also, she wrote this in the 90s. So like. We hadn't even had Bush 2 or let alone Trump. The latest numbers from a Pew survey in 2014 indicate that about 58% of Americans believe in hell. 34% don't believe and 8% aren't sure. So it's kind of still a lot in the U.S. I know it's less in Europe, but it's kind of big. How often did you think about hell when you were growing up? Constantly. Constantly. <laughs> um, and like I I've I've talked a lot about this, especially in the context of um, the anthology that I just co-edited and the essay that I wrote for that. I wasn't raised in a really like hellfire type of church. Mm-hmm. It wasn't turn or burn. But once you learn the idea of hell, <laughs> if you're like a conscientious child who, you know, really wants to do right and is very afraid of doing wrong, then it becomes a preoccupation for you. Nowadays, there's a few different views of hell in Western Christianity. You've got the people who believe in eternal hell and eternal heaven, with or without limbo and purgatory. Um, Then you've got the annihilationists 
who believe that basically good people get to go to heaven and bad people just cease to exist. They're annihilated, which, you know, just like how atheists think, you know, how I think it'll be when you die. It's just nothing that happens only to bad people, which doesn't sound so bad to me. Um, And then you've got the universalists who believe that the whole point of Jesus is that he saved everyone. Right. And everyone will eventually get to heaven one way or another, including possibly Satan himself, depending on the different school of belief. Um, And that's a doctrine called universal reconciliation or apocatastasis. 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 So if, I mean, Jesus died for everybody's sins, right? That's what they say. And he didn't rule out any sins. That's what supposedly the deal is. So. Right. They're all forgiven. Possibly. But most Christians don't believe that. So one person who does is David Bentley Hart, um, who I mentioned briefly earlier. I read his book, That All Shall Be Saved, in preparation for this episode. And he believes in apocatastasis. That's why the book is called That All Shall Be Saved. Okay. Um, I'm seeing a connection. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Universal reconciliation, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. He gets, he goes really in depth about translation issues and stuff like that, um, which I won't get into. Despite he, the fact that it excites you more than anything in the world. I was like underlining every sentence. <laughs> um, he's American, but converted to Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Okay. And, um, in the book, he says, like, I don't know anything about Eastern Orthodox Christianity. He says that, like, their ideas of heaven and hell kind of developed along different lines after the schism. Um, but the book isn't about that specifically. It's basically just him refuting the idea of an eternal hell. And um, he builds very, you know, it's a very, very complex book length argument that I can't really do justice to in a few minutes on a podcast. But um, I wanted to just go Don't through... Don't denigrate our medium. <laughs> I just wanted to go through a few of the points that struck me the most from the book because I think they're really interesting. Okay. I'll allow it. But you're on thin ice, counselor. Watch yourself. First, and this is kind of low-hanging fruit, but as we were saying earlier, how could a God who's supposed to be love and goodness itself condemn people to eternal torment, right? Most humans would never do that. It would be too cruel. Right. And like the people who have come closest are history's greatest monsters, right? Yeah. Um, so like <laughs> Hart has this great quote that's, uh, if that's true, then Christianity's chief distinction among theistic creeds is that it alone openly enjoins its adherents to be morally superior to the God they worship. Right. Like no human would be that mean, <laughs> but we're supposed to worship like a loving God that's way meaner than us. And there's a few common answers to that question, which one is also, as we were saying earlier, God moves in mysterious ways. Right. Like as as humans, we don't understand the, the whole divine scale of justice. And like, OK, yeah, if you believe in God, it makes sense to assume that you don't understand the whole picture the way that God does. But like. Also, Christianity has like a code of conduct, right? Like Jesus came down and said, do this stuff and mm-hmm. don't do this stuff. It would be weird if Jesus is God himself and he said, do this stuff and don't do this stuff. And it and didn't then, matter. And then he followed a completely different and contrary set of values, right? Um, and then the other common answer is that, and I heard this a lot growing up. This was like a huge thing. 
um, is that like God gives us free will to choose or reject him. And like he does that because otherwise we would just be like automatons. And so our worship wouldn't be true. It has to be true because we have to choose it. Um, but then Hart's point is like, it's not really free will if we're like finite beings with limited understanding and we're making a choice about an infinite time period, right? So like Jesus said of his own murderers, forgive them, they know not what they do. So right. why do we assume that actually everyone does know what they do and they can't be forgiven, right? Mm -hmm. When Yeah, when Jesus specifically forgave someone. Right. Because they did not know what they did. Right. And then like also... You're you're on Earth for like a hundred years max. How how can any decisions that you make apply for literally eternity? Right. As soon as you start doing the math on any of this stuff, it really doesn't make any sense, right? Right. Like I don't think humans can even do that math. No, no, no it's impossible. Like, have you ever seen those graphics where they compare like a million to a billion? Yeah. And like when I think of a million and a billion, to me they're just like pretty much the same. Yeah, they're like a very large number. I don't really understand the difference. And like. Most human brains don't. We're not set up to think of numbers that big because we can't count that many bananas or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so then, like, when you think of an eternal hell, I mean, I think of, like, when I think of hell, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're going to get tortured for, like, another lifetime or two. But you're going to get tortured for, like, a trillion years and then another trillion years and then another trillion years. It's meaningless. Right. It's meaningless to talk about that. It doesn't even mean anything. And then, like, <laughs> this was something I hadn't thought about that Hart pointed out, which is that, like, if you've got, like, millions or billions of people down there suffering forever in hell, mm -hmm. doesn't that make an absolute mockery of Christ on the cross? Right? Like, How do you mean? Like, he was tortured for one day. Right. And, and he was God himself. But now we've got, you're going you're gonna to make mortals suffer forever? Like, th that means Jesus' sacrifice was nothing. It was trivial. <laughs> True. How was it a sacrifice? It was just one day. Yeah. It's, as compared to trillions and trillions and trillions of years, right? Yeah. Like, it means nothing. Yeah. And, like, some thieves were crucified with him. They went through the same thing. Who cares? It means nothing. And then you got, you know, okay, how could, how could people in heaven enjoy heaven knowing that their loved ones are suffering in hell, right? Sure. And, like... If they're, if no, they're, they're supposed to enjoy their right, loved suffering. If they're enjoying that, like, that's fucked up. <laughs> you know, like, Isn't that a sin? Yeah. Like, what? then what's the point of worshiping a god who would do that? You know, what's the? how is that a heaven? Um, so Hart has this very interesting hypothesis that basically Christians don't actually believe what they say they believe about heaven and hell. Okay. Not that they're lying, but that they're, they haven't examined it closely enough or they don't, or they're, they're deceiving themselves. Because, like, if you really believed in an eternal hell, you would never have kids. Like, the risk would just be too much. You could be bringing a soul into the world for, like, 70 years just to be tortured for trillions and trillions and trillions of years, right? Like, you would never do that if you really believed it. You would spend 100% of your time just evangelizing the people, right? You wouldn't do anything else. You wouldn't sleep. How could you, right? So, I thought it was, I thought it was a cool book. My main problem with it is like 
as an atheist, I'm reading it and going like, okay, yeah, like this all makes sense. Why don't you apply it to the rest of Christianity too, <laughs> right? Like, uh-huh. um, and he's obviously like super, super smart. Um, but I'm like, yeah, there's logical holes in the rest of it too. Whatever. I, I think it's a very good book to read. I recommend it, especially for like, I mean, whether you're a believer or non-believer, especially if you have left a conservative form of Christianity and you're either a new non-believer or you're in a more like liberal form of Christianity now. I As I read it, I kept thinking like, I really wish that I had had this when I still believed in hell because it's like, it just would have been so comforting to have from like a Christian perspective, the idea like, no, this is absurd. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you really don't have to be afraid of this. Um, but you could still believe in God if you want to. Like you can like you can still believe in Jesus. Uh, you do not have to worry about hell because that's insane. Maybe there's some sort of purgatory or something, but there's it would not make sense for eternal torment to exist. Uh, so that's heaven and hell. Everything you know about it is wrong and no one should live in fear of it. End of episode. Sounds good. Actually, before we end the episode, what, uh, like, did you ever think about heaven and hell growing up? No. Just never thought about it? Not really. Damn. I mean, if anything was attractive, the idea of heaven is cool. You get to keep living. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? That's pretty much the only attraction to it. Even as a Christian, my mind really, like, came up against a barrier there because I just really couldn't imagine what would be so good about it. Like about heaven. Yeah. Yeah. It just seemed like, okay, it's going to be like nice for like ever on the scale of forever. Won't you like lose your fucking mind? Like, I mean, the only thing nice about it is that you don't have to fear death. Yeah. And I guess that's what people get out of it. But the people who believe in it are also very scared of hell, or at least a lot of them are. I was very scared of death because I was scared of hell. Like, in in terms of my emotions, it was not an effective counterbalance. Because mm. I was just like, okay, so I'm going to go up there and, like, play the harp forever. Okay. You like, get to if... worship God harder than anyone has ever <laughs> Yeah, like, I'm sure it'll be nice, but it seems like it'll probably get boring after a while based on how human brains work. The way you're saying nice is, like, it reminds me of somebody going to, like, a hotel on vacation, you know? And you're in, like, Philadelphia or something. And you didn't, the hotel's a little nicer than you expected. That... You're like... This is nice. <laughs> that's like, this is pretty nice. That's kind of how I thought of it. And kind of still like, when, okay, if you think about like the best days you've ever had in your life, mm-hmm. they're special because they don't happen every day, right? So if they do happen every day, then you just get used to it and then it's not special anymore. True. This is material that's all been covered by The Good Place. Oh, right. It has been covered by The Good Place. And actually, I think The Good Place... I mean, no spoilies. It just ended a couple of weeks ago as of this recording. But like, no matter how many Baramis pass mm-hmm. <laughs> in The Good Place, the characters still have their same like quirks and foibles that they had on Earth. They still have the same traumas that they had on Earth and the same concerns and the same likes and dislikes. When in reality, after after 72 Baramis <laughs> or like a billion years... um. Your experience in heaven outweighs your experience on earth. By a jillion times. Like, no, there's not even remotely a a comparison. You wouldn't have any of the same concerns. You would be a completely different being. And I don't think humans can really imagine that. I mean, that's what Paul said in the Bible, in in, uh, 
one of the Corinthians. I can't trying remember. trying to Jesus juke me right now? I am. Uh, in one of the Corinthians, he said, you know, something happens when you die, but look, nobody's been back to tell us about it, and it's really up to God, and we don't need to worry about it. That sounds nice, I guess. Good. Annihilation doesn't sound so bad to me, you know? I'm like, okay, if I don't believe in Jesus, then when I just die, I just die? Great. <laughs> I'm fine with that. I just don't want to be tormented for eternity. That's my main thing. I promise you, I will do everything in my power to prevent them from tormenting you for eternity. Thank you, baby. You're a great husband. Are you ready to rate this mythological concept? Yes. What would you rate this mythological concept? Um, I think I'm going to give it like two out of five ass horns. I was going to do ass horns. Uh, explain your rating. Um, it's kind of cool that our contemporary ideas of heaven and hell are not like invented out of whole cloth, but in fact, they're syntheses of ideas going back thousands of years. Great pluralization of synthesis, baby. Thank you. It's the Greek influence. The Hellenized. Mm-hmm. I'm a Hellenized Jew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I meant to say I'm a Hellenized Jew. <laughs> Uh, that's cool. That's cool that like concepts that we have are, have been like handed off between groups and different religions, different cultures, artists, thinkers, philosophers, and whatever, and then just turn into things that we sort of absorb or get forced on us, Mm -hmm. depending on the circumstance. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That goes in the cool column. Not cool column makes people afraid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't like that because mm-hmm. uh, people act unpredictable when they're afraid. Yeah. I mean, it's like when you think about it as, oh, it's supposed to like keep people in line. Right. By making them afraid. That's actually people who are afraid actually don't stay like in line. They actually like lash out and act badly. Mm. And they get stressed. Mm-hmm. And that's the silent killer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in conclusion, two out of five. I very similarly was going to give it four out of eight. Uh, well, I was going to go with Asshorns, but now I'll go with uh, Mystery Play Hellmouths. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, like eight out of eight in terms of being super interesting and fascinating from an anthropological, cultural, literary, artistic perspective. Mm-hmm. Zero out of eight for ruining my childhood. <laughs> uh, so when that doesn't you seem fair. <laughs> average them out, four out of eight. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Before we end this episode and this season, take a nice little break. Something for Mama and Papa. (laughs) We do have to crack open a record-setting mailbag. It was bulging at the seams. The seams had seams, and they were bulging. Wow. Uh, Thomas and Greta wrote in from Beijing, or Beijing as it's more properly pronounced, but we overcorrect it. Uh, to suggest that we cover the history of the Catholic Church next, to talk about all the fun popes, church fathers, schisms, heresies, etc. Uh, we are still deciding what we're going to do for season four, but that is definitely a possibility. Our listener, Eliana, wrote us a very good email in which she sympathized with Lauren's response to criticism about her use of like. She was, quote, extra impressed by the really chill tone Lauren took of simply expressing that, that, hey, there's nothing wrong with the way I speak, and in fact, I like it. Uh, thank you. I'm kind of a hero. Um, <laughs> she also drew a very accurate connection 
between biblical literalism in contemporary evangelical Christianity and the constitutional literalism that is so popular with Republicans these days. She said, uh, if you already believe in a single book containing all the wisdom in the universe and all of it is literally true and its authors are literal or figurative gods, then how hard can it be to take the Constitution and tell yourself Alexander Hamilton's words are timeless and beyond reproach? I 100% agree with that. I think I've tweeted about this before. It's like the Bible itself should not be taken literally, mm -hmm. but then like they take the Constitution and act like that's the Bible. That was just written by some guys <laughs> in the 1700s. <laughs> Our listener Rohan wrote in to thank us for blessing his good dog, Ryoga. He suggested we cover things like purgatory, heaven, and hell in a future episode, but he's, quote, not quite sure it would work. Well, Rohan, what do you think now? Hmm? Check it out. Did hmm? it work? We did it. If it didn't, don't tell us. Just keep quiet. Um, a listener who was raised Jewish in Israel wrote in to let us know that apparently they do indeed teach kids that eating oily foods on Hanukkah is to celebrate the oil lasting eight days in the temple. Uh, quote, also, for some reason, there was a tradition of knocking a dreidel shaped pinata with a bat on Hanukkah. I think this was a way to symbolize the way the Maccabees beat the Greeks. That checks um, out. Amazing. Love to see the international spread of pinatas. <laughs> they got it. They got something for everybody. They really do. You hit it. Candy comes out. What That's a universal concept. Yeah. Our Australian listener, Brendan, emailed to suggest we throw a blessing their way because of the terrible fires. As Californians, Lauren and I feel deeply for anyone affected by the wildfires in Australia, and our hearts really do go out to you. Dude, like, it's crazy. Yeah. Wildfires are insane. Yeah. And they, like, completely, they're, they're just, like, unstoppable and terrifying. Absolutely. However, we aren't saints. As, as far as we've noticed. And as such, our blessings aren't likely to have much of an effect. But we'll try. No guarantees. <laughs> Please don't rely on us to stop any wildfires ravaging any continents. Um, our listener, Will, also emailed us with a wonderful dog to bless named Monty, who's a Papillon Cavalier Cross. Swear to God, my grandpa has a dog named Monty that is something like that. Mm -hmm. I, it probably has Papillon and Cavalier in it. I think there's something else, too, something bigger. It's kind of large for a Papillon Cavalier, but it's something like that. Anyway, also named Monty. Anyway... Uh, our listener, Will's dog, is a very good boy, but as he gets older, he could use some divine assistance. Couldn't we all? So to Monty and to Australia. Mm, question mark? I say, do not let your hearts be troubled. My father's house has many rooms, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. <laughs> We're all going to die. <laughs> If you want to go to the same place as us, you can, mm -hmm. because the place that we're at <laughs> is our iTunes review page. Uh -huh. So if you want to go there, you should, and leave us a five-star review. You can be like iTunes HR, who said, I love how the first episode they say they are not here to make fun of the Bible, then proceed to make a podcast making fun of the Bible. Five stars. Five stars. <laughs> <laughs> I also love that. Uh, we're not here just to make fun of the Bible. We're here to make fun of the Bible and also to talk about other parts of the Bible. Hoder the Triumphant gave us five stars and said, Fun, educational, save me a lot of reading, and a relatable way to learn about a text that has shaped many elements of the world and has also been shaped by those elements. Hodor, that's exactly what we were going for. 
Ariosta Ferra gave us five stars and said it may be offensive to those who hold the Bible as a source of absolute truth. Sorry. Sorry, moms. Yet will be a useful companion to those who seek to parse the good and the bad, the legend and the historical truth in the holy text. Also exactly what we were going for. A you useful companion like me. <laughs> you are. You're very useful. Thank you. Um, so that is season three of Sunday School Dropouts. If you want to contact us, it'll probably be a while before we respond, but you can at contact at sundayschooldropouts.lol. That's sundayschooldropouts.lol, not .com. Sundayschooldropouts.com is, of course, the sixth circle of hell. Mm -hmm. You can follow Lauren on Twitter at Lauren E. O'Neill. O'Neill spelled like Shaquille does it. Wow. You can follow Nico on Twitter at Nico Bakulich, N-I-K-O-B-A-K-U-L-I-C-H. You can follow the show on Twitter at Sun School Drop. And uh, go to our website, sundayschooldropouts.lol. Uh, I co-edited an anthology about leaving the church. If you like this podcast, you will probably like that. It's called Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. Buy it on Amazon or at your local bookstore today. We support you. We believe in everything you're doing. We hope that you get to live your life the way you want to. We endorse your presidential candidate of choice. That's right. Proud endorsee of insert candidate here. <laughs> but we have to go. It's getting too late. And I have to put my little nightcap on and climb into the little anchovy tin mm -hmm. that I sleep in. Then Lauren rolls it up with a little key. Mm -hmm. And I go... <laughs> so we're gonna do that for several months and we'll see you in a bunch of sundays okay see you on sunday bye Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.